We consider this morning in the preaching the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Heidelberg Catechism faithfully and yet succinctly summarizes the teaching of this 10th commandment and also adds a little bit in Lord's Day 44 with regard to the preaching of all of the commandments. And we read that now as an explanation. It might help us to stand on the shoulders of our fathers in an understanding of just what it is to uh, covet and not to covet and yet to desire earnestly the best things, even God himself and his blessings. In your insert in the bulletin, I will read from the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the Tenth Commandment. What is required according to the Catechism, thou shalt not covet, means that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Then the question is asked, again reflecting upon all of the commandments, can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? The answer is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. And then the question, if in this life no one can keep the commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? Their justification for preaching the law, but also for the strict preaching of the commandments. Why? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image till after this life we reach the goal of perfection. There's an explanation from the Catechism, the Reformed view of the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, and covet those things and then some that are listed in Exodus chapter 20. We want to consider a perspective that might be startling to some of you, the perspective of an Asaph who was troubled, and that is in Psalm 73. Let's read that together so that this word can shape the sermon and our thoughts on the Ten Commandment and leave us with some positive instruction about just what is required in the Tenth Commandment and in all of our living, really. So Psalm 73, book three of the Psalms, according to my Bible here, Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph, a singer in Israel. He had this to sing, And may it be sung into our hearts by the Spirit who inspired Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, 
For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no, there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Interesting what the psalmist is describing here, describing the wicked, is a person and people who precisely do not keep or desire to keep the commandments of God. I go on, verse 10. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, How does God know, and is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I, holy man, have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you've set them in slippery places. You've cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And then this conclusion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. As I said, we want to consider the Tenth Commandment, which forbids coveting. From the perspective of the psalmist Asaph, whom have I in heaven, verse 25, Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Asaph had a problem. He believed in common grace. God led him to see this was incorrect. This was an incorrect view of things, of the wicked, of grace, and of God. Surely, the wicked were puffed out. You could see it in their cheeks like the squirrels gathering nuts. But in their death as well, they had no problem 
as well as in their living. In fact, it seemed as if they, more than the righteous, were prospering. All the wicked, graced of God and blessed of God, and it seems like God has made no difference between the righteous and the wicked. Asaph was thinking, why is God blessing them? Why is this? How can it be? Surely I've cleansed my hands in vain and done all the ablutions and worshipped God as he, as he requires in the commandments. And what's it all about? If everyone seems to be prospering at the hand of God, is he this common God? And is there this common grace of God and great futures for every one of us? And it's simply that the righteous, we, we have problems in this life. We're troubled and the wicked aren't. Well, beloved, we know from the resolution of the psalmist as he works through the difficulty of looking out there and seeing as if, uh, seeing what seemed to be like everyone outside of the kingdom of heaven was just going their jolly way and blessed. He, he saw that this was not as it appeared. These wicked people were in fact being judged of God, even with all the things they received from God in providence, but which they turned to use to their advantage, and which they used as an occasion to scoff at God, who seemed to be loving them anyway and blessing them, and this Israel's God they'd have none of, because, of course, they were a cloudy day. And it would rain on everybody's parade and speak of a God you can't see, but look at them and look at us. No problems. Your God must be sleeping, they must have been saying. Well, Asaph, he was led of God because he's a man of God here. He's a sweet singer in Israel. And he was led of God to conclude, as we almost be, that the wicked, for all of their apparent blessing, are being judged of God and even set in slippery places so that their judgment is increased. And as they sinfully receive providential gifts, they themselves turn from God and their judgment is all the worst. So Asaph was grieved and vexed in mind, and when he found out that he ought not to be envying the wicked. He thought, my, oh, my, what a sinful person I am to doubt God, to doubt that he's righteous, to doubt the blessing that I have, even if I'm not so rich as the wicked and not so trouble-free as they are. That's when he, that discovery was when he went into the sanctuary, beloved, that is when he understood the end of the wicked, verse 17, and the prosperity of the wicked. He had this perspective then, going into the communion of God. This is reality. Can't see it, but we believe it. We know it. In the communion of God, there's truth. There's the truth that is so practical for, for Asaph and for all of God's people but found in the sanctuary, not just an earthly place, but a communion place with the spirit and truth of God. Well, Asaph had that problem, but I don't even want to talk about that today. 
But I want to talk about a more serious problem that Asaph had. He was believing in common grace. That was a problem. But he had a more serious problem. He forgot to believe in common covetousness. For after all, Asaph's perspective of things and good things and what it is to have a good and happy life was being tainted at this time by the things of life, the things under the sun that people receive or don't receive and compared to other people and so on. And he was weighing things with things and and all of this. And he forgot that his problem was that he was looking at things wrongly. And I believe, beloved, he was sinning. Sinning and even coveting things and desiring to have it good like they did. Here they were in Israel. Here he was visiting the sanctuary or doing the ablutions necessary, but he really hadn't entered the sanctuary as he should have. And he was full of convoluted thoughts and desires. And yes, he was this religious man, but he was looking like other people at things and saying, well, that is what it's all about. And he was really, and not so secretly, coveting, coveting things and forgetting God and his things. His was the sin of mankind, common covetousness. Now, God would lead him into the sanctuary and to kindle one desire. And this is the perspective we want to take today. The one desire, our text, whom have I in heaven but you, there is none upon earth that I desire, love, covet, besides you. And we might know the antidote to coveting and really the solution to keeping the commandments with a new beginning of purity holiness and happiness. Let's consider God, my one desire. And that's what you have to say. This is not just my sermon. It's our sermon to hear together. God, my one desire. God says you shall not covet. And then there is this list of things. And there is this long list of things, isn't there? Uh, It's a list that speaks in Old Testament terms of what people might covet. House, should not covet your neighbor's house. Neighbor's wife, servants, male, female, ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. We would say your boat, your Xbox, Whatever else. You shall not covet these things. Now, negatively, I want to say this, that this doesn't mean here that all desires are forbidden. Something we have to, uh, to deal with today. It used to be a, a philosophical stronghold of a view that you shouldn't desire anything, but you should be so possessed of yourself that you should be content, and this is power. The Stoics were like this, of old, the philosophers of the early centuries. Uh, 
No desire. No, no, that, that's, uh, that's not a good thing because then you're showing that you're, you're weak. You're weak. Um, no, that's not what is being forbidden here. In fact, that would be impossible. We're made in the image of God to desire things, <clears throat> to need things, and to want the things we need. So we desire food and clothing, and we have an ache in our gut, and we're hungry. Now we want lunch, and all of these other cravings we might have, or simply desires for necessary things of life. The Tenth Commandment, of course, is not forbidding that, or even that we desire a lot of things, or more things than we have, which the neighbor may have, but which we're not desiring. We just want to have something like them. So they have a 21-foot boat. I'll get a 21-foot boat, maybe a 22-foot boat, and that not, might not necessarily be um, trying to outdo the neighbor, but you're seeing that this is, this is a better thing, and nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong to desire non-essential things. Of course, our life is full of many things and having many things, and if we would desire just essential things, most probably all of us would have to clear out our refrigerators and our cupboards, and maybe some of us should, but just to show that we're keeping this commandment that says you have to live a kind of Spartan life, meaning, I say this advisedly, uh, you have to live as if it's all about self-discipline and things are denied to you and this is the holy, holy way to go. This is a monkish sort of view. And so it's not just a philosophical problem. It can enter the church where you become what are called aesthetics, ascetics, those who, because they would control themselves and they think this is pious, would keep themselves from things, themselves, as if things and desires for things were wrong. I say this a little bit, maybe overmuch, but it can be a problem. And what is forbidden here, however, is the neighbor's things, anything that is your neighbor's, and meaning anything that the neighbor has that you would desire so much that you want them and you don't want him to have them. You're envious of him because he has them, maybe because he has a happy time, like Esau said, and you don't, and he's wicked and you're not, and what's the deal? Why am I dealt this hand and he's got four aces and I've got nothing? What's going on? Desires of forbidden things are forbidden here. And desires that are excessive, that would not be good for us. That's what's forbidden here. Desires. Not just the things, not just any desires for anything at any time. Not even a real desire, important desire, say, to get married. Nothing wrong with that, of course. But it's this subtle way of desiring too much. 
That's what's forbidden. Desiring not only unlawful things and things that are the neighbors, but things that might not be good for you. Be careful what you pray for, they say. You might get it. Remember Israel? They desired meat, quail, and so on. What's this manna stuff? They weren't content. God sent the quail, all right. And in covey after covey, they they were just all kinds of quail. And they got sick of it. They gnashed their teeth about it. But he sent leanness, did God, to their soul, says the psalmist. He sent leanness to their soul. They got fat meat and a lean soul. Amazing. Be careful what you pray for. What you desire, what you crave, that's what coveting is and what is forbidden in the 10th commandment. You shall not so crave this stuff that it hurts your soul. While it may feed your body, or puff up your pride. Now, so positively, and the catechism hints at this, what is required is that we delight in all righteousness, that we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness, Q&A 113. There's this hate we should have for all sin, not desire even all sin, and not just things, but sin, and this delight in all righteousness. Just what Asaph had to conclude. After he came to repentance, really, and he says, I was just like a beast before you, God. I was acting like a beast. I didn't get your providence. I didn't like your providence. I wanted what they had. I was grabbing what they had, and you didn't let me have it. And there was a sanctuary there all along. It could have gone to that. But here I was flipping through the catalogs, Sears and Roebuck, we used to have the catalogs, and going through Amazon and finding how much stuff I could get. And then you led me to the sanctuary. I should have been there before. Into the place of communion with God to prayer. What a fool I was. See, the 10th commandment teaches us about our foolishness. It's big that way. Gets to the heart of all sin, the heart, the desires we have, the loves and passions and preferences and priorities we have in life. You shall not desire everything but God or anything but God. In all your desiring, in all your getting, make sure you get wisdom. In all your going to the store, make sure that you bring in the sanctuary along. The movable sanctuary. What's that? Your heart. All the little things of life. The details where nobody can see you. You're flipping through the channels and all this. You're taking the sanctuary to the program to the concert, to the hockey game, 
so very important that we keep ourselves from the sin of coveting. I just want to share with you some passages. I'm going to read. You can be saturated with the scripture that reminds us of the sin of coveting. Ephesians 5, 5. Fornication and all unclean, 5.3. Fornication, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. As is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Chew on that. Right up there at the list of sins that are forbidden, covetousness, right up there in the catalog of those who do not enter the kingdom of heaven, they don't go to heaven, they go to hell, is covetousness. And right there is an equation of covetous and a covetous man with idolatry and an idolater. You think of that. Just a desire like that. That's it. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, they speak of desires that we had. 1 Peter 1 and verse 11, for example, and that we ought no longer to have. Verse Peter 1.14, excuse me. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, those are covetous desires, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's not befitting a saint. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. That's covetousness, grabbing, not just sexual desires, all fleshly desires, which war against the, the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and so on. Our witness is at stake. Don't. Be like the Gentiles grabbing for, for stuff like you used to be. Make your delight in spiritual things. Matthew 19, verse 22, I'll just refer you to that, that story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. The man said, hey, I've kept all these commandments from my youth up. And Jesus said, one thing you need, sell all you have. He was covetous, and come and follow me. Here it is. And here, in fact, is the purpose of the whole of the 10th commandment. It's this, to expose the sinfulness of all the sin, of all the commandments. Paul brings this out in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Amazing passage speaking to us of the significance of, of the 10th commandment. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And we should ask this question as we go through the 10 commandments and we're finished with them for now. Shall we say that it, the law is sin? Certainly 
ought. On the contrary, I would not have you have I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment preached in me, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The idea is that when he was confronted by the law, and especially the law, do not covet, that law went right to the heart. And it said, oh, but what about your heart? What about your desires? You who say, I never bow to an idol. I never had another man's wife. I never stole in all my life, not even from the grocery store, not even a grape. What about your desires? And you who've never bowed before the other gods, you've never had them. What about your desires to be God? You see, the Tenth Commandment reminds us that all of the commandments are pronouncing as guilty those who basically are centered on self and from our being centered on self, selfish, we go to stuff as if we have this coming to us, whether it's the neighbors or whatever. It should be this way because we, well, we have other gods, namely me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, the Tenth Commandment reminds us that the Ten Commandments come to all the me, myself, and I's who in Adam did just as Adam. We started seeing things from our own perspective and saying, you know what? I think we deserve a break today and we ought to be able to eat of every tree that we want. And God would not be fair and is not fair to limit us. So the Tenth Commandment reminds us that sin is a matter of the heart. It's a dangerous sin. It's the mother of all sins, as one has said. The root of all sins. Covetousness is wanting things and to do things that... We know are forbidden, but we want them and to do it anyway. Look at James. James chapter 1 describes the, the process of the terrible sin of coveting. Each one is tempted, James 1.14, when he's drawn away by his own desires. Those would be covetous desires. The temptation begins here. And enticed. So there's a desire, then there's an enticement. As some very sensitive theologians have described, first you see things, then you start to take pleasure in them, then you really want them, and they've got you. You wanted the things, the things then have you. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived like a child... 
It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. The whole point of the Apostle James here is to say, we are the sinner. Of our own desires comes the sin to birth. Nobody, not God himself, tempts you to sin. The thing isn't the problem. The lady ultimately showing everything just about with little to be imagined. She's not the problem. You are the first problem. Thou shalt not covet. It's a very subtle sin. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 5 describes covetous this, uh, this way. Neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, Paul is saying when he preached to them. We did not use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. Covetousness is a sneaky sin. It disguises itself with a cloak. So the minister wants, he wants in, he wants to preach here, and he is a nice guy, and he seems like he really wants the best for your souls, but he's out to fleece you. He wears his cloak of righteousness. He wears his cloak of religiosity, but inside he's not going to be happy till he's got you under his power. And this becomes his domain and his kingdom. That's a terrible thing when this happens in a congregation. Next thing is a cult. But before that are a lot of seminarians and a lot of seasoned pastors who think they can amount to something by controlling people, lording it over them, and so on. Beloved, covetousness is amazingly subtle. I likened it, as someone had likened in commenting on this commandment, here we are with all our stuff, and everybody else has their stuff in this earth, and we're called to desire God, and yet, and, and we're sailing along like a boat. You, know, you have this boat, it's on the sea, it's on a big lake, sea, whatever, and you need all this stuff. It's like water for the boat. You float in this life, you exist in this life with things. You need them. Nothing wrong with that. That's how we live. We have things, and we have to just sort through them and so on, but here's the problem. When the water on which you sail gets into the boat. Think of that. When the stuff that you desire and you're, you're picking through and what you should have or not, it comes into your boat. But like water, the stuff starts to sink you. And the grabbing of the stuff and all the desires start to hold you in the hold of the ship, and down and down and down you go. You're supposed to be above this. You're supposed to be those who are seeking the things above, and covetousness says to us how we operate naturally. 
is to be those in a boat that's either half sunk or on its way down real fast into the world. Even though we have a sail, a banner that says, I am Christian. The Catechism reminds us that we have a small beginning. Tenth Commandment, it, it should rip us apart. Comes into our lives and disturbs us, does this commandment should. But the Catechism would encourage us We have a small beginning of obedience so that with earnest purpose we begin to live and not only according to some but all the commandments of God. Now, that phrase, a small beginning, has been debated and whether that's an encouragement or a discouragement has been debated. Well, first of all, it's reality, isn't it? We, we think about the Ten Commandments and God says, do not covet and here's what you should do. Have just God. Look at that. Have just God. Desire just God. That's, that's Asaph. That's the man who went to the sanctuary. That's the man who went to the cross and realized he owes everything in this life and eternal life to God. Went to the sanctuary, desired God, How little, though, is this our life? Just have a small beginning of this, don't we? Our boat is just above the waves. I'm sinking down and down and down, and the things that that I desire, they're mine now. In that I got what I wanted, only served to kindle desires for more because you're never happy. The covetous person is never happy with what he has. It's just one thing more, a dollar or a million dollars. So we're just above the surface, maybe. So the catechism is, is right. It's just a small beginning. We're not perfectionists. You think about the, the commandments? No, Christians aren't those who keep them perfectly. Are you, are you kidding? But you wonder if that's sometimes a rather pessimistic thing. People have debated this, this phrase. We have a beginning. We have a small beginning of the new obedience. Really? Is it always small? Always small? Doesn't it get bigger? Don't we get better at this? Being holy isn't the case that we progressed after all these years and being catechized and and going to the studies and serving the Lord at just a small beginning still? I think we could be a little more optimistic. We grow. Surely the old timers would say that and in our flock, we have a few. We've grown. Wouldn't you say that? 
I think, beloved, there's a lot of wisdom in this, this expression, or at least the concept, new beginning, but small, and reminds us that it's not on a certain scale that we're measuring things here, as if we're approaching the righteousness of God. You know what, beloved? You'll never approach the righteousness of God, not, not as God is in himself. We are given and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, but comparatively speaking, we're just sinful and we're just earthly and God is God. And the commandments remind us of this. This is the holy will of the holy God. So small is, is really a good term. And the oldest of us would say, do you know what? It seems as if I sin more after 50 years and 70 years of battling against sin. I, it seems like I'm just a worse sinner. And my perspective of things is I'm not holy at all. My righteousness is only Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's the idea. That is really true sanctification. And to be sure, there's things you overcome There are new insights you gain. You're kinder. I hope so. You're more gentle. You're wiser. You're a better minister. You're a better hearer. You're a better doer of the word. You're more content, should be. But after all, we're still sinful. And we still need Jesus. Far more than you need your boat or your self-esteem, you still need him. And that's a good thing. Because he who was given to be your righteousness continues to be your righteousness. And if you learn nothing else from the Ten Commandments series, I hope you know that we've sought to bring to you Jesus, our righteousness. Every sermon. So how do we, who are not content with status quo, how do we improve? I don't think the catechism is saying here, you know what, this is it. You got a small beginning, sit there. And just, just know this. Thou shalt not covet means you shall not covet what's forbidden to you, what's not good for you, what does not give glory to God, but it does mean cultivate desires for the good things. How about like this, the Word of God? More than all the things, here's some positive practical applications, then I'll let you go. More than all the things of this world, desire the Word that has come into this world. Psalm 19 compares the word of God to gold. And it says the word of God is more to be desired than fine gold. Is that our desire? The word of God. So that, here's the result of it. You read the word, you hear the word. Your mind is renewed and it once again is in control of all those desires. See, that's our problem. 
We just think of what we desire, but we're not thinking. We're just letting the desires go. Think. And so the mind controls the desires. Now we have a problem, and I want to address that. You want me to preach this strictly? Then I get to address that. I believe that it's not only sinful desires that are our problem. And thou shalt not covet. And thou shalt not have these forbidden desires. That's not the only problem. There's another problem. Maybe it's greater than sinful desires. It's having no desire. Now, think of this. It's having no desire. What do I mean by that? It's what I would call a free-floating Christianity. You're, you're floating on the lake or this river of light. You're just floating. You're not in a boat. You're not in the good ship church. You're, you're not understanding that Christ would steer you a certain way and call you to trim in the sail over here or take this tack or that tack and go somewhere before you get to heaven, because we all want to go to heaven, but even before that, to go somewhere, to be intentional about your next step in life. A lot of us just are free-floating. We go to work, we don't have any desire to be a positive Christian there or maybe to develop our talents and might lead us to the same job or another job. And it's especially when we're not, when we're done with work, we don't have any desires to do anything else and we start going like this or this. And you all know what I'm referring to, all the media. Amusements. Amusements, beloved, fine, entertainment. But amusements can be at the heart of so many instances of covetousness and a whole life of covetousness and a whole life that is without any thought of desiring God, any thought of desiring God. And I'm referring to what amusements are. I said this to some of you, maybe off the pulpit. You know what amusements are? They are amusements. What does that mean? Thoughtless things. That's what entertainment is. You don't have to think. Sit back, no thinking. No thinking. Years ago, when I was young, a heathen man once wrote a book, very popular, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He was, called, he, was, he was talking about America. We are amusing ourselves to death with all these things and all these ways of entertaining ourselves and so much time in our hands. And we, we, we got enough and we're, we're set with that. 
Don't desire anything more, certainly not God, and certainly not to improve yourself and to go to the sanctuary, which might lead to your saying, I need to suffer for God's sake and righteousness' sake. Don't do that. Just amuse yourself. But it leads to death. It does. Because amusement is thoughtless entertainment, which is the exact opposite of a meaningful Christian life. A meaningful Christian life is very thoughtful. We are those who, by the mercies of God, in light of them thinking of Jesus, we think upon how we might serve God and present our bodies and our lives a living sacrifice to God and be renewed by the transformation of our mind by the word of God and the gospel and the cross and the resurrection and the coming again of the Savior and the Holy Spirit blessings that are far greater than any common grace blessings that anybody else might have. What I'm trying to say here is that this thoughtlessness is just one way We are led not to be positive doers of the 10th commandment because we have no purpose, no desire. And the 10th commandment is not forbidding every desire. And certainly it's reminding us that there is an inner desire, a positive thing, which is to delight in God. And how do you delight in God? In light of the word of God transformed by your thinking to think the thoughts of God before you desire anything, and so that you desire him above everything. Oh, beloved, this is tough, but it's simple. And what I want to do today is to preach to you enough of free-floating Christianity, free-floating Mondays, free-floating evenings, purposeless activities. Even though entertainment, part of our liberty, needed to come away for a while. But know this, sanctification is hard work putting off the old man and putting on Christ. And if it were possible, we would be desanctified one program at a time, wouldn't it? We need more amusements. There's a word. Forget amusements. How about amusements? Things that promote thinking. Studies. Conversations that are not pointless but are gathering ourselves around the word of God and truly sharing our hearts. What is our delight here at Sovereign Grace Church? You want you want to be revived? The Tenth Commandment is the revivalist commandment. It's a revivalist commandment. What I mean by that, it revives sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. I had not known sin except that the Bible said, you shall not covet. And I was going along merrily in my wonderful ecclesiastical position and at the top of the Pharisees and going places. But when the commandment came, 
I just withered away. In all my pretense, in all my pride, in all my aimless, selfish, proud religion, and I was as no man anymore, just a sinner. That's it. So that's what the Tenth Commandment does. And I preach it to you today. It is so that you're led to Jesus, beloved. And you're led to the desire of God to have you and to give his son for you. And so that you desire him back above all things. So don't look around. That's easy for us to do. Easy for us to do when people are hair splitting. For example, homosexuality, the deed, that's wrong, they'll say. And it is. But then they'll say, but the desire, that's not sin. But they're wrong. Even the desire. Okay, that's easy. We got that. Sinful desires are sinful. But it's so easy, isn't it? To criticize the world in all its covetousness. And to say smugly, yeah, they got a lot of things, but they're just wicked. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? Easy as pie. I could even shoot a fish like that. But when it comes to dealing with ourselves, not so easy, is it? There's all these desires and they just swim around. And they hide under the rocks. The commandment comes and would find you out. Has it found you out? Does it find me out? May the commandment find us at the cross. And may that be the motivation. Christ's death for us and is coming again for us to living a covetous, free life and desiring God only. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and make us to be more conformed in your image. We are, Lord, just sinners. Declare to us truth, Lord, right to the heart. Forgive our many sins. And we've been so stuck in this world and trying to keep from this world, but then just finding ourselves delighting in it. No time for you. Forgive us. Give, Father, that this congregation, having heard the ten, and now the tenth, can know the wonderful mercy of God. Lord, remember us. Remember that we are not claiming any righteousness, but Christ's are all and we would give glory to you. You've worked that new beginning in us, Lord. Oh, we pray, though it be small, may it grow. May our praise to you be more enthusiastic, more full of love and passion, more enlightened by the truth. And so, Father, we will come away and we will, in light of the commandments, in light of the gospel, say there's a holy God not only holy and just, but he's full of mercy. And he would have us be his children. Hear our prayers and 
bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.